Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I cover surveillance of marginalized groups, so there's always stories for me to cover, unfortunately. Um, but I just published a follow-up to a big series that I did on immigration surveillance. Hey folks, it's another Fanboy Friday with me, Shah Jahan Khan. This week's guest is Johanna Buya. Johanna's been working as a journalist since 2013 and is currently a senior tech reporter and editor at The Guardian. Before The Guardian, she worked at the Los Angeles Times, Recode, BuzzFeed News, and Politico. You can read an excerpt of our interview on Rafelion's FON website for Muslim American Creative Projects at createfon.com. That's C-R-E-A-T-E-F-A-N-N.com. More with Johanna Buya and me after a quick break. There is this former cattle monitoring company. So yes, they used to monitor cows um, that works on behalf of ICE to monitor and surveil almost, I mean, at this point, it might be more than 200,000 migrants in the U.S. Um, and they do that through ankle monitors and facial recognition apps and now a smartwatch because uh, a lot of Democratic uh, administrations want to seem you know, still tough on immigration, but not tough enough that you're putting people in ankle monitors. It wasn't like, uh, oh, they took that same cattle monitor and then turned it in, like just put it on immigrants. So there's but been the principle know, of it is kind of yeah, the principle of the company, which is like we're very good at monitoring things and and you know livestock, I guess. And so yeah, I just I did a big investigation on them last year, and then we just got a hold of a bunch of new public records about the program that answered a lot of the questions that we didn't, you know, weren't able to get before because the the company and ICE are both really opaque about things like what do they do with the facial recognition images they collect through the app, and do how often are they checking people's location? Um, turns out they're storing that data for up to 75 years, which is, you know, someone's entire lifetime. So yeah, that that story just the follow up just went up yesterday. I'm, and it's a it's a story that, uh, you know, the investigation I did last year was one that I was really proud of. So while yesterday's story was kind of just a small follow up to it, it, it did feel kind of like a victory lap. Like I was like, look at this information that validated a lot of the stuff that I found through my own sources and, and uh, without public records. What's maybe something um, that's a little less well-known? I mean, I guess I would argue that what you just told me is not a super well-known story, but <laughs> what's maybe uh, something more niche that you're just interested in and that you follow? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I do think, unfortunately, with surveillance, a, a lot of things are niche because people take their privacy for granted. Um, probably one of the more insidious parts of my, you know, the things that I cover is just law enforcement requests and data brokers um, and law enforcement requests through law enforcement requests, government agencies like ICE, um, like your local police or your local sheriff can simply ask Google for all of your information. And that happens quite frequently. Like Google is probably the biggest target because they have so much data on us uh, and they do publish a transparency report. But I think, and I say, I mean, people sort of know this, right? Like they kind of know that like all of their information is being tracked somehow, but then their knowledge and I think concern about what happens with that information starts and ends there. They're like, I know Google is seeing all of this information. And they make jokes about the FBI agent on their phone, like, you know, getting to know them really well. Um, but that supply chain goes much further, right? So like Google can give that information to law enforcement, but not just Google, right? There are other apps that you're using. I remember there was a, a big story a couple of years back where Muslim Pro uh, was sharing information with, uh, or at least was contracting with a uh, government uh, contractor, you know, a, a military government contractor. And so it's so opaque. It's so untransparent and people sort of freely give our data, I mean, myself included, to all of these companies, um, not really, I mean, not in, not in everyone's case, but for many people, not really thinking about what happens next because, you know, why should it matter? Like, we, literally, it's just the cost of doing business right now, right? Like, you have to give some level of data. And so it's not exactly niche, but I spend so much of my time basically trying to show the real harms that can happen to people through these supply chains and through the sort of like ad tech surveillance model that, you know, and world that we live in, because that's the business model of every company that we interact with right now. What do you remember from publishing your first story or like your first big byline? What was that like? Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was uh, 10 years ago. I wasn't exactly a tech reporter yet. I, I focus squarely on tech now. I was a media reporter, um, which at the time I really, it was just my first job. So I was like, whatever it takes, like I will do whatever job um, I get. Um, and a media reporter, you know, we cover the media. So I was covering companies that I potentially wanted to work at um, or, you know, just some of our competitors. So it was very like, inside baseball, kind of navel-gazy, not my favorite kind of thing. Like I went into journals, I'm thinking, I'm going to be at the front lines of wars. Like I am going to be a foreign correspondent, um, which, you know, I'm still not doing that. And I think they, my parents are probably really happy about that. But I, the biggest story I did at that time, and it was my first big investigation, um, was about a company Oh, geez, I'm actually forgetting the name of the company because it doesn't exist right anymore because that's just like the way media is. Yeah. Uh, and it was this big company that was um, selling, you know, their big their big pitch was that they like scoured the dark web for stories. Like that was their big, uh, you know, like this is the thing that sets us apart. That we're better than Vice. We're better than BuzzFeed. I remember interviewing the CEO and he was just like, what's Vice? <laughs> That's like, okay, let's let's not pretend. But I got a, I just started getting a bunch of anonymous documents sent to me, mailed to me, um, to my office with all of this information that showed like, it, there's no dark web like secret sauce that they were using. They were just like 
doing like really deep Google searches. Um, but there was like quite a bit of other, like they were just like, here is how they came up with story ideas. Cause that was their whole thing. We come up with story ideas through this like software that like scours the dark web. Funnily enough, it really ties to what I do now because that's a lot of the same pitch that surveillance companies will make for police. Like we scour the dark web to like find connections and nobody else can find. And it's just all snake oil because it's, they're just Google searching. It's, we all, we all do it. Um, so that was, yeah, I remember getting all this like stack of documents from like an anonymous source, the name. It was also very like deep throat. Like he had like a weird name. I'm assuming it's a guy and that's probably not fair. It might've been a woman, um, but it had like sort of an anon, like some, some like pseudonym that was very cartoonish. And I was, it was so exciting. Like it was exactly why I wanted to be a journalist. I'm like, I am getting freaking stacks of documents sent to me. Like, I don't know who's sending it to me. And it wasn't like the most insidious thing in the world. Like the company and its owners had some ties to like, they, they had some, there was a, some more nefarious side mm. of the uh, story and like of the company itself. But like really the crux of it, it was like this entire thing is BS. Um, it was just, it was just really exciting. Like it was my biggest story. I then like in the middle of that story got recruited to go work at BuzzFeed. And so I, it was my final story. I published it like the day before I joined the other company, which was a little bit complicated, but it still felt very much like a victory. Uh, how would you say that the industry has changed uh, from when you first started? Well, for one, many of the companies that I once worked at no longer exist. Um, so I used to work at BuzzFeed News. That okay. is. No Did you know Emma, Emma Dali Akbar? Yeah. yeah he's a very, very, very close friend. friend. Close oh, that's so funny. Yeah, I was just texting with him the other day. Yeah, Emma is yeah. a good friend of mine. Um, we overlapped toward the tail end of my being there. Um, we actually had started uh, a, like an internal, I don't even know, listserv called Halal Feed, which <laughs> initially was like... Um, basically a way for us to get people to stop publishing videos and like stories that were really silly when it came to Muslims, like just like poorly thought out, like sometimes very offensive things. Um, and then, but it also was like a way for the Muslims in the newsroom to like actually talk to each other and, and be friends. Um, but yeah, so a lot of the companies I used to work at don't exist. So I used to work at BuzzFeed News and then I worked at a smaller tech publication called Recode. Um, you know, which at the time, like, it was such a big deal. Like, it was such a big deal. Kara Swisher started it. She left the Wall Street Journal to start it. Um, it was like, we kind of thought of ourselves as like SEAL Team 6 of like tech reporters. Like, we were like the special unit. Um, but, you know, th these things kind of just happen. Um, this, when I joined, it felt like we were, or when I started as a reporter in 2013, it felt like media was on like an upturn. They were like, a bunch of new companies popping up. Venture capital money was being poured into the industry. Um, a lot of individual sort of star reporters, marquee reporters like Kara Swisher, uh, Nate Silver, like a lot of folks like that, Ezra Klein, left traditional media to start these, you know, like digital media publications that were really centered around who they were and what they did in their particular brand of journalism. Um, and yeah, it was just kind of an exciting time. People were getting, starting to get paid like a livable wage. <laughs> and I hadn't yet gotten to that point at that, like when I first started, but you know, money was coming in today. It's like, you know, 
we're always waiting to hear what media company is going to lay people off. You know, WNYC literally yesterday uh, said that they were going to lay a bunch of people off. So it feels much more precarious than it did when I started. That being said, when I started was very much a peak and it had just, they were just coming out of a valley too, right? So this is like, this happens to media in waves. Like it keeps happening. You know, there's like leading into when I started, that was like when digital media companies first started becoming a real thing. Um, so it, I think, pulled the industry out of that sort of funk, that post-recession. But we're we're facing new threats to our business model and new, I mean, new threats, but also just like new tests of our business model that prove kind of once again that advertising as a as sort of our main revenue stream is just not viable. Um, so yeah, it's it's a little bit more precarious and unstable at this point, which I'm sure like young journalists who are listening to this are not excited about hearing. What's your daily routine as a journalist? My daily routine as a journalist, um, I'm not going to pretend that I don't sit on my bed and Google <laughs> my phone. <laughs> like okay. I go to my phone, I go through Twitter. I like go through my email. Um, I will often just like before I get up, shoot a couple of emails out, answer people really quickly. Um, and then, you know, just figure out if there's anything that I need to be focusing on. Um, and then everything else is sort of case by case, depending on whether or not I'm working on a bigger story. I'll sort of just like spend my time digging into that story a little bit more, which could mean I'm looking for more sources. So I use LinkedIn quite a bit. I like kind of cold email a lot of people through LinkedIn um, or I set up calls or email people or whatever it is. Um, I have basically until noon to myself because I, while I'm based on the East Coast, my team is on the West Coast. And I actually just moved back from San Francisco a couple of years ago. Um, So I don't need to talk to anyone until 12, 15, usually. (laughs) Um, so I have until 12, 15 to do like, you know, the work on my stories that I'm probably not going to be able to after that. And like, you know, just kind of spend my, my time reporting things out after 12, 15, we have our morning meeting and I usually, you know, more often than not, we'll get assigned some sort of daily story or like some story to do for the next couple of days, depending on what's going on in the news. So like yesterday, I spent most of my day. Our posts are like, for me, it's an afternoon meeting, um, just working on the Amazon FTC news that FTC just filed its big antitrust um, lawsuit against Amazon. So it really depends it's case by case. These days I'm pregnant, so I'm, everything is slower. Oh, congrats. Thank you. I'm um, just like moving much more slowly and kind of ambling my way through the day. So yeah, it, it, it kind of depends. What are some of like the most important skills that you think a good journalist ought to have? Um, Curiosity. So important. Like if you are not curious, you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. And I think a lot of people get that wrong. They think that they need to be like the authority on the topic that they cover. Some reporters and journalists think they need to be authorities on every single topic. That's just, it just doesn't make sense. Our job is to ask questions Um, And in fact, I don't, it doesn't help me to be the smartest person in the room. Like I want to be in a room where like there are people there who couldn't give me information and who know more about a topic than I do. Um, So curiosity is so, so important. And then the second skill is like actually being able to listen to someone and like hear someone and not, you know, be like sort of 
pushing to hear the sound of your own voice. Like I, I it's, it's kind of ironic I'm saying that because I'm doing a podcast right now just about myself. No, no, I get <laughs> Um, but, but truly like in conversations. And again, I think part of this is like a little bit of like, I need to prove to this person that I'm interviewing, that I have good questions, that I'm, you know, knowledgeable about this and sure, absolutely. But the thing that you can do that will actually help you and will probably help the source tell you more is just to listen, like listen really carefully and repeat back what you're saying to them. So I think those two things are the most important skills because you can get better at writing and you can get better at interviewing people. Also, just like sort of, you know, being able to distinguish like what's a story and what's not a story, which can you know vary so drastically between what people's beats are and things like that. Um, my beat is really, really specific for a very, very specific reason. You know, I cover surveillance of marginalized groups. There are other surveillance reporters out there who don't have that specific of a focus and they cover kind of like, you know, they do great jobs. I mean, they're like amazing reporters. Um, but I want to, I was really deliberate about that because I want to focus on and sort of highlight a lot of the people from vulnerable backgrounds who are being harmed by these systems. Um, and obviously as a, as a Muslim American who lived in New York when, you know, like during 9-11, pre 9-11 and then post 9-11, um, a lot of those stories are like quite important to me because I've seen the impact that, you know, it has had on people who do, who often don't have like a safety net or a support system or like political capital to push back against these systems. Last question. Um, who are other like Muslim identifying journalists that you admire? Mm, um, I feel like if you've asked any reporter this, they've all said Rowayda Abdelaziz. Like she's, you know, incredible. One of my I have favorite reporters. She actually interviewed my dad for something. And I, my dad's not allowed to talk to reporters because I refuse to allow anyone to talk to reporters in my family. Um, but he asked me if she was trustworthy. I'm like, oh, yeah, she's like literally the only journalist that I would trust you to speak with. Um, yeah, Malika Bilal is she's an incredible journalist. Um, I mean, and she's just like such an inspiration um, and does, you know, really amazing, thorough reporting, which... I, it's so silly, but I feel like I, the questions that I got a lot when I first started was like, how are you going to be a reporter when you're a hijabi? And I'm like, trust me, the last thing I need, anyone needs to worry about is me being meek and in the corner and like not being able to like, you know, push my voice out there. I'm very talkative and loud. We're good on that. Um, and then I have, you know, other re reporter friends and colleagues who are Muslim who I think are incredible. You mentioned Ahmed al Akbar is actually an amazing food writer. Mm -hmm. He does so much justice to like South Asian culture and, you know, really takes time to think about those stories so deeply. Um, my former colleagues at the LA Times, Suhana Hussein, is also an incredible reporter. She does um, really deep looks at labor, again, with like a very... Um, clear focus on accountability and just human stories, right? Like you can write a labor story that's like unions are mad, but like, how is it actually harming the people? You know, there are a lot of people, like, people who don't do that. And Sohana does that really well. Fanboy Friday is a production of Rafaelion Media. It's hosted by me, Shah Jahan Khan, and produced and edited by Ari Mathay. Our theme music was composed by me with help from Nick Zampiello at New Alliance Mastering, and features my good friend and longtime musical co-conspirator, Tanya Pollitt, on vocals. 
please follow today's guest, Johanna Buya, on Twitter or X at J-M-B-O-O-Y-A-H and read more about her and lots of other cool stuff by American Muslim creatives by subscribing now to createfon.com. That's C-R-E-A-T-E-F-A-N-N.com. Thanks so much.